It's my favorite kind of Torah. <laughs> Do you read the written Torah? It's rather boring. Yeah, but no, but this my is brother, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> what did you just say? This is? The written Torah is rather boring. I don't understand The written Torah? Neither do I. No, I don't understand how everyone can be arguing in the Talmud about something and then be like, oh, but this is the right answer. Why? Or how we can know certain things that are in the Torah, that are in the Gemara, that just like, we don't know. But it says we know, indefinitely. Excellent. Okay. It's still my favorite kind of Torah. Do you not have favorite kind? And it's like... I don't know. I just have a hard time using it as evidence. Not evidence. There's no evidence. Okay. Fine. Now we're ready to talk about our individual souls. Are you ready? Oh, no. <laughs> no more about the hierarchy between you and other people. We're done with that. Now we're going to talk about ourselves. Okay. We're at the line that starts likewise. Likewise, there are distinctions between... How's this for nice Hebrew? Nefashes and nefashes. <laughs> Which, in case you know what that means, soul. Between souls and souls. Okay. What does that mean? For every soul consists of nefesh, ruach, and neshama. Every soul consists of three levels known in Hebrew as nefesh, ruach, and neshama. What is the translation of nefesh? Nefesh. What is the translation of Ruach? Wind. Ruach. What is the translation of Neshama? <laughs> neshama. What? Okay, so we do this again. Every soul is made up of three levels. The levels are called Nefesh, Ruach, and Neshama. What is the translation of Nefesh? Nefesh. What's the translation of Ruach? Ruach. What's the translation of Neshama? Neshama. Okay. Right. We're really moving through this. Okay, let me explain what I mean. Okay. What is the meaning? What is the meaning of the word telephone? The meaning of Yeah. Like, like, what is the meaning of the word telephone? What is the meaning of the word telephone? So the word telephone, the telephone, so tele means what? Distance. Far distance. And what does phone mean? Sound. Sound. So something that transmits sound. From long distances. Okay. So if someone's never heard of a telephone, ever, they've never idea, right? And you say, and they, they see this word telephone, you say, oh, well, telephone, it's made up of the word long distance and sound. So it's a way of transmitting sound at long distance. And they, I'm, oh, now I get it and they pull out a radio. This, this, it, it sounds at long distances. This is what telephone, right? Now you're, what, did they make a mistake? Did they do something wrong? Right? And then there's a third person, a second person comes and says, oh no, 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 that's not a telephone. You know what a telephone is? 
a telephone, they hold of a megaphone, and they start speaking into it. Because then now, see, when I speak, people can hear me from very far away. That's a telephone. And a third person says, what do you mean? Anytime you shout, that's a telephone. Because, you know, when you shout, then people can hear you. Why is this ridiculous? Does how, does the origins of a word tell you the actual meaning of a word? No, there is an interesting story as to why a particular thing is called what it is, right? Okay, that's very nice. But simply dissecting a word into its original component parts doesn't actually tell you what the word actually means by the people who are using the word, right? That makes sense? Okay, so. Does the word ruach actually mean wind? It sure means wind. Does that help you understand what the word ruach means here? No, it is zero help, okay? The word ruach here is being used in a very different sense, what? So, yes, with a few, with a few um, caveats, which is that helps you show the linkage between ideas. But if you don't know what the original thing is, I'll give you an example, which is a personal pet peeve of mine. What is the mitzvah? Can you tell me about what a mitzvah is? Like everyone's heard of the, what the word mitzvah. What is a mitzvah? A connection. No, it's a commandment. It's not a connection, it's a commandment. A mitzvah means, what does a mitzvah mean? A commandment. Now, is there a, is now is there another word called sapsa? Yes, that word means connection. Is there a reason why the word for commandment is related to the word for connection? Yes, and the reason is that the inner meaning and purpose of the commandments is to connect. Okay, but now this is a problem because a commandment actually has certain elements to it, which not all connections have. For instance, a commandment requires authority. Right? If you have a commandment, then you have a commander and a command e. Okay? This actually creates a great philosophical dilemma. Can there be a commandment to believe that God exists? Because doesn't a commandment presuppose that there's already an authority figure? So a religious commandment presupposes that you already believe that there's a God. Okay? So you miss out a lot when you, when, you, when, you, when you reduce something to the origin of the word or what the word is connected to. That's, that's caveat number one. So yes, if we know what a mitzvah is, we know the concept of connection, and then we say, but the fact that they have this similarity, it shows us a deeper insight into both, that's fine. So if you know what ruach is, the Kabbalistic idea of ruach, and you know the Hebrew word ruach, and you maybe see how it else is used, maybe you can then draw a deeper meaning and understanding. But if, you're, if, if, you're, if, you're, if your baseline thing is I have to look for wind here, that's as ridiculous as a person trying to figure out what a telephone is merely from the fact that there's long distance sound. Right? That, that, that's too broad and too open-ended or too ambiguous. Once we've spoken about it, though, can you connect it back to it? Yes. Yes. Okay. The second reason why this, is, why this is dangerous is that it is not always the case that the path is as direct as you might think. Okay? So... Um, For instance, what does the word awful mean? Awful. Really? So when you go to the Grand Canyon, you're like, oh, that's just awful. So, 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 so what does the word awful mean? 
bad. What? Okay, so here's the thing. Actually, the word awful did used to mean full of awe. So if you read something from Victorian English and, and it says the painting was dreadfully awful, what it meant is that it filled the person with a sense of dread and awe as they gazed into this painting. Right? It doesn't mean that it was like a bad painting. It probably meant it was a very good painting. Okay? You've heard of Ivan the Terrible? Okay? Well, now, now Terrible is a translation of the Russian, which I don't speak Russian, but um, what, what did, what, why was he called Ivan the Terrible? He's often the Terrible. He was one of the czars of Russia. Now, he, he, it turns out that like most you know, monarchs, he was a pretty cruel guy and did a lot of horrific things. But why was he called Mon Ivan the Terrible? Because it doesn't mean the same thing it does now. It probably meant like strong. It meant, it meant, it meant more like what we mean now when we say awesome. In Russian, no, ter terrible. In Russian, I don't know. What? I want to say about great. Yeah, actually, so Ivan the Terrible and Alexander the Great, those two titles were more or less synonymous at one point. Now it happens to be Ivan the Terrible was a really nasty person, did some what we would now say is terrible things, and so the, the, the title stuck, but the meaning got shifted as people like, started associating with other things that he did. So, the, the, what, so now, knowing how words shift their meanings and how words relate to other words is not as always as obvious and as direct, and so you run the risk of imposing some idea which is to, it isn't true or doesn't belong. Okay, so for those two reasons, it's always better to, when a word has taken on a meaning that is very detached from its entomological root, is to just take that word for what it means and then worry about right, the origin of the word backwards. Which is why in, when you studied, you know, whatever language you studied, English or whatever you grew up studying, you know, when you had a vocabulary thing, the teacher didn't say, the origin of this word comes from Latin. Like, that's not how you learn the meanings of words because it's just not helpful. Once you know the meaning of the word, knowing the origin of it might enhance your knowledge of it. Okay. That's why you hear sometimes really stupid people, I call them stupid because you know, I'm opinionated, um, saying that decimate means to kill one in every 10 per people. Because what does the word decimate mean? It, like, death is 10. And there was a practice in Rome, supposedly, that as a punishment to the legions, if they misbehaved, they would kill one in every 10 soldiers of a legion. And that practice was known as the decimation of a legion, supposedly. But does anybody use the word decimate to mean that? No, we mean to totally annihilate, right? So even if that, whether that story is true or not is beside the point, but like, even if it's true, like, well, decimate only means one. No, it doesn't. It means what people mean when they say it, right? And so, right? If someone says, I have the flu, is a good one, another one, right? If someone says, I have a flu, it's very important to know, they, are they a medical professional or are they not a medical professional? Because if they're a medical professional, what should you do? Stay away from them. They're very dangerous. But if they're a regular person and they say, I have the flu, it's just a cold, they have a runny nose, like, it doesn't necessarily mean they have, right? Because we, most, at least in America, we use the word flu for any time if you feel mildly sick. Whereas, like, actual influenza can be life-threatening and is very contagious, right? So it's important to know who's using the word, how's the word being used, okay? When Kabbalists use the word ruach to refer to a level of the soul, it means something very specific. It is a very technical term. When they use the word nefesh to refer to a level of the soul, they mean it in a very technical sense. When they use the word neshama, and these words are not interchangeable, which is why our translator 
thankfully did not what? Translate them. Translate them. Right. Okay? Yeah. When you say that every soul has three parts, are we talking about every godly soul? Yes, because remember, this whole chapter is only talking about the godly souls of the godly soul. This whole chapter is only about the godly soul. Okay, so these three parts. Now, what do we know that these three parts is that they're arranged in a hierarchy, right? So, here's the rule with these souls. We're going to start like this. Number one, you cannot have a higher level without the lower level. It's like Jenga. And you know, playing Jenga, you pull out the, if you pull out the whole la- layer of one layer, it will all collapse. Okay? In other words, everything is as, every, everything is as stable as the weakest point uh, at that height. Okay? So if you are, let's say, the lowest level here is going to be called nefesh. If your nefesh is rock solid, you can build on top of that the level called ruach. But if it's not, if it's shaky, then the ruach is not going to be very stable. It'll collapse. Okay? And then if your ruach is rock solid, you can put on top of that this higher level called an ishama. But if it's not, it's all going to collapse. Okay? Like a building. Make sense? Okay. Now, everyone should be okay with that because they don't know what that means. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama. Okay, one level, another level. Okay. These three levels are distinct from each other. Okay. Um, and what that means is that the shift between one to the other is not a gradual shift. You don't gradually turn from nefesh to ruach or from ruach to neshama. They're very... Now, I don't mean to say that in real life it's always easy to tell the difference. Okay? Um, but it's not like, we'll say, white and black and you can have a gray scale in between. They're two totally different kinds of things. Or three totally different kinds of things. All right, now that's enough of the uh, around the stuff. How can your soul have three levels? We're ignoring I, I didn't see any chayichida here. Like, I only am teaching you what's here. I don't, I don't know. It says there's only three levels. Where did you find this, 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 this other information from? Okay. It says three. Yeah. Never sure. What? Okay. When you translate, when you're saying like not to translate like these three words, is that the same way where you say like not to translate the spheres? Same way. It's really not helpful. Because you don't know what the spheres are. Okay. So, so the thing is like this. Now, the godly soul... As we're going to develop later on, but should hopefully be obvious now, is all about godliness. Okay, which is a very vague term. I'm going to leave that vague for the moment. Okay. The one thing that I want to say is that the godly soul, its its whole being centers around being connected to godliness. Okay? Now, that word "being connected" is very open-ended. It's a very vague term. What does it mean to be connected to something? So I think we all understand that if you like physically super glue your hand to 
a piece of paper, right? That while your body might be physically connected, right? You wouldn't say you as a person are now connected to the paper. That, that, like, right? That's just like a feature of chemistry that like the glue is, you can't get your hand off the piece of paper, right? Connection has some level of attitude, of feeling, it's subjective, right? That makes sense? So, do people ever complain that like, um, oh, I'm doing these mitzvahs, but I don't feel connected, right? Do you ever hear people complain that? Okay. So, what, what is this thing called connection? What, what does that mean? What does it mean to be connected? So, the godly soul is about being connected to God, so what does it mean to be connected? You want to flesh that out? And you, by the way, if, if godly soul is hard to talk about because we don't know what that means, we can substitute this was just connected to other people. That'll work too. Or other things, doesn't matter. But it has to be that kind of, you know, personal kind of connection, not like you're physically glued to something. What does it mean to be connected? To care about what they care about. To care about what they care about. What else? To remove any perception of separation. To remove perceptions of separation. To know what they're like. To know what they're like. Okay. To feel like a part feel like a part of them. What does that mean? So, I mean, like, I know I, I have some sense of it. To care what they care about. I don't like, like somebody, I don't know, somebody, my kid cares about a particular project that's coming up in school. So if I care about that project, right, that's a kind of a connection, right? But if I don't care about the project that they care about, then that's kind of a disconnect, right? Um, if there are things that are separating, so I, I get that also. So for instance, my wife wants to tell me about her day and um, I'm too interested in something else. I don't hear, even hear what she's saying, like really hear, right? So removing that distraction or on a deeper level, removing that, ex that, that, that other interest to really remove that barrier, that's more of a connecting, okay? To know what someone's like. I mean, the fact that, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you confuse which, ki which of your seven, six children like which foods, Right? It means you're somewhat less connected than if you remember which kids like which foods and which kids dislike which foods, right? It's very straightforward, right? Okay. But what do you mean feel like a part of them? That's a very, like, sorry for saying this, very fluffy. I don't, I like, if I, if I didn't, if I didn't assume that I knew what you meant, I wouldn't, like, what, what does that mean? What am I, what does that feel like to feel like I'm a part of them? I mean, I'm clearly not a part of them. I mean, I guess a pregnant woman feels like her child is part of her. It's like, that would work. But is that what you meant? Mm. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> that that there's like something like connecting you. <laughs> that there's something that you have like the same foundations on that you feel that you are together in some sense. Okay, so like shared values. Yeah. Okay, shared values, shared objectives. That might, okay, I get that, yeah. If you feel like you and someone else have the same values, the same objectives, and you can feel connected to them. Any, any other ways or modalities of being connected to someone else? Yeah. I would say something about reliance, but I think it's true that A can be connected to B without B feeling connected to A. Right, yes, that's so in true. That, but in that way, are we considering connection uh, mutual. So, the, the way I like to put this is that I like to divide 
connections um, into two categories, what I call mature and immature. Um, and I use the model of immature as the parent to the infant, where the connection is all one way, it's asymmetrical. The parent's um, connection to the child is independent of the child's lack of connection back to the parent, right? The, the, the infant, have you guys ever seen newborn infants? They don't really connect back. They just kind of, they sit there. They can't even sit. They can't even <laughs> sit, right? They just literally, they just literally like kind of like sprawl. They more like sprawl in whatever position. Now, now, so there's a tremendous amount of you relating to them and feeling them and being drawn to them and etc. But there's nothing, at least in their experience, um, going back the other way, right? And then you take the like the opposite is like say two adults, right? Where you know, if you have that relationship where you're like, you're really invested in someone else and you're really caring for someone else, you really enjoy being with them, and they're totally unresponsive to you, right? That generally doesn't work. Something, some functional ends up happening. Um, and so when you have two adults, and that kind of like where there's a back and forth and a commingling of, you know, experiences, that I call the mature relationship. And it's not that one is better than the other, they're just different. And that's why you know, um, there's advantages and disadvantages to each one. Um, so, and, and you know, in 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 a relation, in, a, in an immature relationship, reliance should only go in one direction, which is the 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 parent should be reliable relative to the infant, although the infant doesn't really realize that. Yeah, I guess they go older, they realize that somewhat. But there are no way it should be the other way, right? If the if the parent needs to be relying on the infant, then something is seriously wrong. That makes sense. But then in a mature relationship, you could argue, which is that reliance has to be mutual. In other words, I, I, long term, if one person is relying on the other in a way that's disproportionate, then it's going to end up like collapsing. So like at any given point, one person can be being more vulnerable and more relying on the other person than the other, but there has to be then that feedback. It's like... You can say a lot of things. This gets into the unfortunate stuff about real life parents. Um, in what sense do you mean parents emotionally rely on their children? So that, the, so then the answer I would say is no. That that meant something is unhealthy. Um, people who, God forbid, lost children, and this is very rough and kind of, not, I'm speaking from observation, not personal experience, but can roughly divide into two categories, which people who it destroys their life and people who it does not. And it's not that people who destroy their life care more and people who destroy their life care less. It's that they're not reliant on the child in order to be a functional person, and they can feel that pain and integrate it within the rest of their experiences. Um, and even channel that and utilize that. And other people, um, they have that dependency and it completely destroys them and their, their lives can fall apart, sometimes in very drastic and horrific ways. And I would say that that's, that's clearly something is wrong. So if, if we're using reliance in the, in the sense of ability to function, which is what I meant, then I would say no. If you mean in the sense of you feel something, of course you feel something. And of course there's a difference between your child, Baruch Hashem, being there and being cute and adorable and, and, and you're 
gaze at them when they're sleeping and give them a kiss on the forehead versus, God forbid, you know, the extreme opposite. Those are very different kinds of experiences, but if you can't function because of one or the other. Whereas in mature relationships, I can't function in a relationship with an adult if that adult is, as they say, only a taker. It eventually breaks down. Right? That's one of the reasons why, like, in relationships like that, where, like, you know, you, where, like, we develop certain levels of professionalism, like, I only invest myself so much, I hold certain things back. Yeah. Was Yaakov too emotionally reliant on Yosef? Because he kind of seemed to fall apart. So that's different. Um, that's different because the way our sages explain this is that there's a principle that the dead are forgotten. That's the way they put it. Which basically means that somebody who passes away, you are able to move away from the, that immediacy of that experience and like have a more holistic sense of it. Well, if the person hasn't actually died, um, and therefore there's a sense that something should be rectified, and therefore there's this unease that something needs to be rectified, which is, you see this, like, God forbid, like, this is the difference between, God forbid, you know, somebody whose child dies in battle or goes missing in battle. And who goes missing in battle, there's always this sense that, like, okay, but, but maybe there's something to be done. And because of that, there's maybe something to be done that gives a person no peace. That's a totally, that's a different dynamic. And because Yaakov had a certain level of prophetic awareness, he was unconsciously aware that there was something to be done, therefore he could never be consoled. So by that perspective, we believe that he knew his sons were lying when they brought him a bloodstain? I would say the better way to say is that he had unconscious awareness of it. He was, because, in other words, was he consciously thinking they were lying? No. But the, the prophecy didn't allow his unconscious mind to really accept what was being told to him. And so he was unconsolable. In a way that somebody whose child has gone missing, and statistically they're probably dead, but, but, but maybe not. And so there's no solace. It's much more like that. That's a different dynamic. Yeah. So, okay, I was thinking about what I said, that like, because you're a part of something. Yes. Could, Hash, could you say Hashem is connected to us even though we can just be like a baby that does nothing, Correct. but because he has a part of him inside of us, that there's that like innate connection. Yes, you could. Okay, so yes. I think that's... Okay. <laughs> but then that's like the same, like you feel connected to your baby because you have a part of you in them. Okay, so that's the thing is that you, you, right. So that's another kind of connection, which is, and that can work both ways. In other words, like parents to the children is like, this is in some sense a continuation of me. Um, or you could even abstract that outside of that to this is the fruit of my labor. Like this, people can feel this way about things that they've done, right? This is a, you know, people feel connected to a book they wrote, even if it's not, not necessarily the best book in the world because it's the product of their own mind and their own hard work. And then the reverse is true, right? You can feel connected to something because you derive your identity, your lineage from, from the, that people or that group. Yeah, okay. So that, that makes sense, yeah. <laughs> I would argue that that is not. That goes back more to, that's a more sophisticated version of the sticking your hand to the superglue. Unless, unless the genes are more than genes. Um, it's like a parent can adopt a child and feel what, just as connected as if they have to. What, what I mean to say is like this. That if you, this is, if you view your genes as carrying something significant about who you are, in, in a, for lack of words, psychological or existential sense, then yes. But if you view genes as merely a 
um, chemical substratum that you're built of. And so it's kind of like whatever. Like, like there are people that's become the mode. Some people speak about parents as merely gene donors. And if you think about genes in that very like purely chemical sense, then like, I mean, then, you know, I mean, there's so many chemicals that influence your body, right? So where do they matter, matter where they come from? So, I, what, so my, my sense is that people often say genes and they're referring to the genes as carrying something more significant than just merely like, you know, the actual chemical stuff. And in that sense, I think it goes back to what we said earlier about senses of identity and belonging and place where you come from and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's not the genes per se, it's how you conceptualize genes. You'll see that Althorpe actually has the same notion of, of genetics, is that the physical stuff is not the, really the main point. You'll see when he speaks about our genes coming from the brain of the father, which so he doesn't mean that in a biological sense. If you, like, at a basic level, there's, like, a few human, like, two humans, I've never seen humans for a while, and they meet each other and they feel, they feel a sense, is that, that would be because of they share the same genes, it's more of a sense of identity? I would say it's the same, I would say it's because of the same, because you exist on the same existential plane. Human beings, like there's a level of the way you exist that you cannot share with a dog. Right. Right, and it might correlate with your genes, but it's not the chemistry of the genes that uh -huh. means something to you, it's that okay, fine, yeah. this is somebody who understands a sense of, let's say, questioning your purpose in existence. And therefore, I feel some kind of closeness. Yeah. And that happens because of Maybe, maybe not. It's certainly correlated with genetics. Yeah. Really off, I just wonder if you have the answer, because you were talking about labor. How can you be allowed to have a child on Shabbos if that's like the ultimate creative labor? Someone once told me that, I told her I was born on Shabbos, and she was like, oh, you know, yeah, she, it's, not, it's not a good thing to be born on Shabbos because you made your mother sin. Wait. <laughs> okay. Okay. So two things. Sorry. So so two things. Number one, number one, we do not. And I've said this before. We do not work. We do not reason halacha from first principles. Certainly not first spiritual principles. We don't say that which is creative is therefore forbidden. That's not true. That's number one. Number two. Um, you are, in fact, not allowed to choose to go into labor on Shabbos. Meaning scheduling a seat. You are not allowed to, all things being equal, schedule any medical procedure on Shabbos or three days prior to Shabbos. Not because, of, not because that takes away from one's experiencing Shabbos as a restful time period. That being said, the overall majority of women outside of South Africa do not schedule their births. It's the only thing that we do. It's very popular in South Africa. Yes. So, yeah, South Africa, I think it's something over 50% of women schedule C-sections when it's convenient for them. Why? I don't know. It's just a statistic that I read. I don't know why it is, but most countries, most countries, most countries, most countries, it doesn't work that way. So if, if, it, is a, if, it, is a, if it is a purely optional desire of when to schedule, uh, uh, when to either induce labor or a C-section, then yeah, you would have a problem of doing it on Shabbos right before Shabbos. Now, in Israel, like the only time that they're doing a C-section or inducing labor is when the doctors think that it's really medically necessary, in which case, like Shabbos is suspended anyway at that point, so it's relevant. And no, your mother did not sin, nor did anyone help her. 
Wait, can yeah. you do it like within three? Like you just three can't do it on the Wednesday, but you can do it on Thursday. No. Schedule an operation. So, but it's oh, that time frame of yeah, three days. Yeah. Now, how, depending on how, sometimes you don't have a choice in the operation. That's right. Okay. So. Okay. 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 Um, now, so one of the things that we should be seeing here is that connection comes in different modes. Does that make sense? But not it, it, connection is not just one thing that you have more of or less of, but they're right. So let's think about this. Can you be very connected to someone in a sense of sharing values and goals, but in no way feel um, connected in a way that you actually care about what they desire? Is that possible? Yeah, what would be an example of that? People have values, shared values, shared goals, and they really have zero care what the other person wants. What? Coworkers? Coworkers. I mean, maybe. Coworkers are like a vague thing because like, you know. Yeah, but let's, so let's take that, but let's make it a little more extreme. How about, how about comrades in arms? Soldiers fighting together. Does that necessarily mean that they like care what, what the other person cares about on their personal lives? Potentially. Does it necessarily mean that? No. In fact, what's interesting is that this kind of thing of shared primary value, like say love of country and shared goal, can compensate for actually an override extreme, extreme personal dislike. Um, one of the things that the, in the United States is that they realize is that if you want to get white people and black people not to hate each other so much, do you know what you can do? Put them in the military in the same combat units and throw them into battle together and watch what happens. And it turns out that it really not only to get along, but it often it often totally overrides and changes personal dislikes. I hear that about the Israeli military that like since like everybody goes to the military, it's like such a melting pot. So there's still like a lot of like, right, and and. But, that, but that's my point, is that that is limited within the scope of that. As you move outside of that scope, the underlying fact that the person... Right, so you can, you can, you can, you're not really causing them to be people who care about each other on an individual basis and, have, and, you know, and, a, and on that same way. It's a different kind of connection. And in one sense, it's much deeper. But in the other sense, it's total, it, 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 it kind of bypasses individual personality. Right? But now, friends who have shared interests that move from shared interests to enjoying spending time with each other, that's, that's a different kind of connection. Right? So connection is different modalities, and you can't think of it, and I'm not going to make a whole taxonomy of all of them, but it's not, it's not acceptable to think about it being that there's just one kind of connection, and then you have more of it or less of it. Make sense? Okay. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to broadly speak about the three modes of being connected to Hashem. Now, I want to be very clear. We're talking about our connection to Him, not His connection to us. Right, so remember this thing we spoke about mature versus immature connections, right? Um, God has invested a part of Himself in us. That means God is always connected to us at minimum like a parent to an infant child. Right? Well, let's talk about the reverse, which is our connection to Him. 
Okay, so the godly soul can can connect to God in roughly three basic modes. And are these modes arranged in a hierarchy? Yes. So you cannot connect in the higher mode unless you're connecting in the lower mode. Okay. The first mode we're going to we're going to label as behavior. I'm going to explain these, but I want to label them first. Behavior. The second mode okay, is emotion. And the third mode is knowledge. Which means you cannot connect to God in emotion if you are not fully connected to God in behavior. And you cannot connect to God in knowledge unless you are fully connected to God in emotion and behavior. That's the hierarchy. It is a hierarchy. It is a hierarchy. With knowledge at the highest. Knowledge at the highest. Knows what is the ultimate form of being connected to God? Knowing. knowing God. Okay? But you cannot know, you cannot connect to God through knowing until you've completed connected to God through feeling, and you cannot co- connect to God through feeling until you've connected to God through your behavior. Is that parallel in the real world? It is very much parallel in the real world. Ah. Because. We, by these things, we do not mean these things in isolation. We mean these as the, as the focal point. So let's take, for instance, you have a relationship with a person, okay? And again, not you being an infant and your parents, not that kind. A relationship with another person, a mature relationship, yeah? So let's take, for example, a coworker, which is a relatively shallow relationship usually, but we'll start there. Let's say you... Do not speak to the coworker in a respectful manner. You break the coworker's trust, okay? So they're, 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 you, you've led them to believe that they can rely on you to do something and then you don't do it. Um, you, you speak about them behind their back in order to get advantage over them at work, okay? Um, and you don't um, pay them back if you borrow money from them. Okay? Let's just say those, those basic facts are the case. Can you now compensate with the fact that you really like them? And you, and you know so much about who they are? Or that's ridiculous, right? Right? Like, like what you... Right? In fact, we have a name for a person who has no regard to how their behavior affects another person, but feels such strong desires for another person who knows so much about them. You know what we call such a person? Sociopath. Yeah. Or I was going to use the word stalker. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's not a relationship. That's not a connection, right? In other words, you know, it's... In other words, there's almost an invasion. Like, how dare you feel so strongly to me personally and know so much about me if you cannot even treat me with a certain level of respect in your your behavior? Yeah. Um, I do feel, though, like where there's like a genuine sense of mutual, like we care about each other, like with spouses, sometimes, not to open like a whole can of worms, but sometimes comes forward from like infidelity issues. And I feel like that it seems to me like that comes from, yeah, the behavior was atrocious, but we know that there's still an emotional connection and you know me and you're my life partner and whatever. And so like 
we are going to move past the behavior that was inexcusable. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to take a step back. There's something before this, which is the valuing of connection per se. So if we're going to use your example, let's say there's a marriage, there's infidelity. What's the first step? Because at that point, there actually is no, no actual feeling connected. But, there, but the first step in that healing would be valuing feeling connected. I want to feel connected. The other person wants to feel connected. And so now we're going to do stuff to, in other words, the valuing and desiring that there be a connection is a background before all of this. That's a, some, that's a different kind of thing altogether. You're saying they don't, that like someone who's been cheated on doesn't love their, instantly doesn't love So I, I'm going to avoid the word love because it's, it, it's one of those words that's so vague. No, no, no. I'm going to say this. They have a desire to feel connected and they don't feel connected and therefore they feel tremendous amount of pain. And one now they, and then, then that generally takes one of two paths. So I'm oversimplifying. One path is that they decide to stop valuing the connection as a way to not have to deal with the pain or they decide to rebuild the connection which is going to require finding some way of working through that pain. Okay. But then the first step in actually rebuilding the connection is going to be actually on behavioral things. Like, how does the person rebuild the trust that the cheating partner isn't actually cheating anymore? And like, if that isn't in place, like, don't tell me about how you feel and how like, that, that doesn't mean anything. Right. So yeah, there is this idea of valuing of connection. But valuing of connection is not the connection itself. Right. Someone, and I, I made a little bit of fun of this, that there are levels of the soul not mentioned here. Because those levels of the soul are not the being connected. Those are the levels of the soul that cause the soul to value connecting. That's not what we're talking about here. Like, does every godly soul value being connected to God? Sure. Does that mean every godly soul actually feels connected to God? Unfortunately, no. So these are the ones who help? These are the actual modes of connecting. These are actual ways that the soul is connecting to God. Connecting to God in a way that you actually experience connection. Okay. Um, a good analogy to this is we all understand the difference between the desire to learn and actual learning. Yeah? Okay. Similarly, the desire for connection and actual connection are different. Yeah. Are these three in the text? Nefesh Ruach Hashem. That's all he gives you. He presupposes that you're familiar with Kabbalah. And so you know what all this stuff and means. And so we know that that relates to each of these. Yeah. I'm going to explain what they are. Wait, yeah. And the desires, those two other... The desires, the two other ones, yeah. There's, there's, there, obviously, if you have a connection and you want that connection, you try and grow in the connection, there's a... Pr- behind that, there's a desire for a connection. Wait, and why... So then why are these three terms just stated? Oh, because behavior... Now it's worked the other way. So is it, have I established to you that you can't like have a relationship of feeling when, there's not, when the behavior is not in place? Okay, but now is it true that merely treating somebody nicely and respectfully and politely and doing everything you're supposed to do is itself a connection? No, that's not true. That's obviously false, right? Otherwise, if that were the case, then we would be deeply connected to every other human being that we're decent to. All decent human beings are connected to decent human beings, which is not the case. So it's not that behavior is the connection. It's that behavior is the, is the mode in which the connection takes place. So for instance, okay, um, it's not enough to, going back to my examples of the coworker, it's not enough that I don't stab the person behind the back in order to get a promotion at work. It's that my not doing that comes out of a care for their benefit. 
It's not that I speak to the person nicely is enough. It's that I speak to the person nicely because I genuinely want them to hear me because I care about their opinion. You hear what I'm saying? In other words, it, it's true that behavior is like the, the keystone to the whole thing, but you need all elements of the human being, right? It's not enough that I give them a gift on their birthday. The gift has to be a gift that shows I know something about them. If you just give a person a generic gift that doesn't really bring you closer together, I mean, unless you're like a three-year-old or a five-year-old, then okay, then, right? There's a, you know, it's like, it's like the, 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 the husband decides to buy his wife power tools for her birthday, which, you know, okay, granted, there are unique cases where that actually would be appropriate, but, but stereotypically, that, what does that show? A lack of connection, right? I actually knew a rabbi who did not know how to drive or change a tire, but his wife knew how to use power tools. So, um, yeah. Actually, one, the funny thing was, one time they had a flat tire, and his wife gets out to change the tire, and he looks up from his books, and he realized that she's changing the tire, and so he wants to be helpful, and he looks around and sees a hammer, and so he takes the hammer and like, goes out of the car and says, would this be helpful? <laughs> That's how clueless he was about changing tires. <laughs> So what I said is stereotypical, but you understand the point? You can't, right? So it's not behavior, just following the rules of behavior creates the connection. But when that behavior in, is, is, a, is, a, is a kind of a funnel, it channels in and the way the person, what the person knows about the other person, how the person feels about the other person, it serves as a mode of connection. Right? So when, we, when what we do and what we say towards another person or what we abstain from doing, what we abstain from doing, another person, is connected to how we feel about them, the desire to be close to them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what we know about them, then those behaviors actually serve to build a sense of being connected. But if you just strip the behaviors and do the behaviors blindly on their own, that's like, that's like it's just not disconnection. It's not really fully connection. Yeah. But it's still better than having emotions. It's still better than having emotion and then completely having the wrong behaviors, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes? Um, well, in that situation, though, he clearly doesn't know about, like, changing a tire, but, like, some part of his life's... Like, yeah. clearly, his life has this whole skill set that he knows literally nothing about. Right. But the gesture is still sweet. Even it is. Even though it's missing the knowledge. It is. It is. So, but you're saying that, like, the baby doesn't mention anything? No, no, because there's, no, no, no. I didn't say the baby, the, 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 you have to look at the whole person is what I'm saying. In other words, what I'm saying is misbehavior makes the, makes feeling connected impossible. Proper behavior becomes the framework in which the entire person can channel their and build a sense of connection. But now the question is, okay, how does that work? Okay, so for instance, let's say, for example, and I, could, I take that, I happen to know the, who the couple was, but I'm going to give you two versions of this. One version is she respects his learning so much and his being involved in deeper spiritual stuff that she doesn't really want him disturbed. And he... Um, appreciates very deeply the fact that his wife doesn't want to distract from his learning. And there's a tremendous amount of appreciation and gratitude that's felt between them. And then he hands her the hammer. Okay? So that's... So there's, there's a proper behavior in some generic sense of trying to be helpful. 
right? And the, and the, the fact that it is, in the specific level, the wrong tool actually is indicative of some, you know, deeper appreciation and mutual respect that they have for each other, right? But now I could switch the background of what they know and feel, and now it's all different. Let's say she's resentful that his head is up in the clouds, and he thinks um, that the point of having a wife is to have someone do stuff for you so that you don't have to be bothered with the petty menial stuff in life. And then he hands her the hammer. Now what? That's right. So, so it's, the behavior becomes like the place that get, everything gets plugged into, but you need the entire person. You need what they know and what they feel. Behavior and the, right? So you say like the bottom level of this is just don't misbehave. But the top level of this is where the right knowledge and feelings are being channeled and expressed through the proper behavior. Okay? And within that, you have a whole range in which to grow and build your sense of being connected. Okay, that's called nefesh. The lowest level of nefesh is the sense I shouldn't misbehave. I shouldn't behave in a way that's destructive to the relationship. And what's the highest sense of nefesh? How to use behavior to channel and bring about the deepest senses of connection. Possible. And now that obviously requires that the behavior is not just mere behavior, but actually is connected to feelings towards the other person and knowledge you have of the other person. Okay. Okay. Does it sound like there could be anything above that? Or does that like sound like the limit? Like the, if you had to look a lower level of feeling connected and an upper level, of feeling, that's kind of like good range, yeah? Within behavior. Within behavior. We're going to get to what's behavior. So let's put this in terms of God. What would it mean to have your nefesh on the lowest level? Like if you're nefesh, you've actually felt this level of your soul called nefesh. It actually was, was built up and matured and developed. Think of, a, think of your godly soul as like a person. When they're an infant, there's no expression whatsoever. A little newborn infant, they literally just sprawled there and you have to hold them, right? What's the first developmental level of your godly soul, of it actually experiencing connection to God? What's the most basic, basic level? Doing the mitzvahs? No, because it's not doing the mitzvahs. Without understanding it. Okay, but, but, but let's go back. The first level of, be, the, the most basic level of connection through behavior is just not misbehaving. Mm-hmm. That sense that I should not misbehave. Like I shouldn't do things that are like clearly destructive. So that first sense would therefore be the sense that I shouldn't sin. It's a very vague, why I shouldn't sin, like somehow there's something wrong with sinning. Like there's a way of like doing behaviors that destroy connection with God and I should avoid those behaviors, which means I shouldn't do certain things and I should not not do certain things. So for instance, um, I have a student who wasn't really Shomer Shabbos at all, like didn't keep Shabbos. What? No, sorry. No, just a, a life story. And um, so how did he become religious? Very interesting. He grew up kind of in like a somewhat religious family, but he wasn't religious for a few years. And then he got a job offer, and a really good job, and then he was told that he has to work on Shabbos. And all of a sudden he felt that he shouldn't work on Shabbos. Okay, maybe you know who you're talking about. <laughs> No. <laughs> <laughs> right. You shouldn't work on Shabbos. Okay. 
Now, if we put this in the context of the Tanya, what just happened? Why did he feel that he shouldn't work on Shabbos? He's a godly soul. But what level of his godly soul was now revealed? The nefesh, the ruach, and the neshama will be called the nefesh because it's all about behavior. And which level of the nefesh? The lowest. The lowest level. And in the lowest level, just the glimmer of it. Because if, if that lowest level was fully revealed, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have been, he would have been keeping Shabbos all this time. But somehow, to go this far, not just to violate Shabbos, but to actually work on Shabbos, I was like, like, this is too much misbehavior. This is too, like, like, it's one thing to talk bad about your coworkers. It's another thing to actually call the FBI on them. Right? It's like, like, there's levels of misbehavior. And so, right, some people's nefesh only kicks in this lower level nefesh when they have, like, are cho- faced with the choice of converting to another religion. Whatever. Doesn't matter. Now, I, since then, he went through a lot of things and built on stuff, right? And so there's this process of growing. But what's very interesting is the process of going is still all focused on doing the things that will bring me closer to God and not doing the things that will separate from me. If that at the end of the day is the issue and all of what I know and all of what I feel is oriented towards that, it's the same basic mode. So the person who's working on having an enthusiasm and keeping Shabbos and lighting Shabbos candles and the yeah, even though there's a lot about knowing more about God and feeling more, but at the end of the day, that is all being channeled into making the act of lighting Shabbos candles as connective as possible. So it's still all focused on the behavior. So this is why we don't, this is why nefesh is not behavior. Behavior is behavior. Nefesh is the mode, the level of the soul, which sees connection as happening through behavior, but connection involves the whole person. It's not just behavior. It's with the right behavior, from the right reasons, <coughs> the right motivations, and there's room to grow and develop. And, and frankly, most Jews, most of the time, that's basically all they'll ever feel. That's the level of their soul. To go beyond that is very rare for most people. Because if you are struggling with either not doing the wrong thing, or even doing the right thing, but doing the right thing in a way that makes you, that to make you feel more connected, then you're still on the level of nefesh. If you're trying to make mitzvahs more, a more meaningful connection to Hashem, you're still on the level of nefesh. If you're trying not to sin, you're still on the level of nefesh. If you're trying to have a, a, a sense um, of how mitzvahs are not just rote things you do, but are, but, are, but are powerful moments of connection, you're still dealing with nefesh. There's a whole range. And yes, feeling is part of that and knowledge is part of that and self-control of your behavior is part of that, but it's all focused on one thing, which is how does this behavior serve to connect or disconnect me from God in a way that I actually can feel the connection and disconnect? Someone raised their hand and I ignored them because I wanted to finish what I was saying. Yes? Yeah. Um, I'm curious how this relates to the whole concept in Shomer and Yeh that like, the behavior, like physical intimacy of like touching another person's hand leads to, I don't know, my interpretation at least was that that can lead to a connection. Some sort of sense of no, that is a connection. Okay, but we just said that if I come to the office and give, you know, twenty of the same gift to twenty different people, that doesn't create any sense of connection at all. Well, so remember, there is a. It, it does create. So, 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 I want to modify by saying it, it creates a very minimal sense of connection. You're the you know, the, so it's very generic. It? So I want to be very clear. Okay. First off. 
There's no such thing in Halacha Shomer Nagia. It's made up. No, no, no. What I I don't mean it's no, no. I don't mean it's made. I mean, like there are. <laughs> what I what I mean is like this. There are there are there are. It's like if you look in if you look in halacha, in halacha there's nowhere it says Shomer Kashrus or Shomer. It's just like. Like even the term Shomer Shab is really made up. Like there's a, there's a, there's a mitzvah to do this. There's an, and you have to do it. There's a prohibition. Doing this, you're not allowed to do it. It's like that simple. There are some things which are optional. Like the halacha says, like this is a good idea if you want to do it, but you don't have to. But the Torah says that there are certain things that are forbidden. One of those things is any kind of contact between genders, um, even if it doesn't lead. To anything beyond that, okay. Um, there's actually a verse in the written Torah, Loisikarev, do not come close. See, to what? To <laughs> someone that you're not, who is not your spouse. It says that. Yeah. To someone who is not your spouse. No, it says it about to one of the forbidden relationships, and from that we have a general principle to all forbidden relationships. Okay. It's not a. It's not a rabbinic thing at all. There are. There's debate about certain specific things. Are they rabbinic? Are they not rabbinic? Um, but it, it, it's, it's prohibited because the, the, it itself is a kind of a closeness and that closeness is itself prohibited. It's not because it leads to anything else. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do we continuously fluctuate on the bottom and top of this fish? So I would say like this. Most of us do that, but that is because we are bad at having a relationship with God. Having a relationship is a skill. Having relationships with people is a skill. I know that's very unromantic to say that. Having relationships, having a relationship with a spouse, having a relationship with your children, having a relationship with friends, it is a skill. It is something you have to learn how to do. Okay? If you do not know what to do, or how to do it, then what ends up happening? It looks like a roller coaster. Sometimes you stumble on something that really works, and then sometimes you're not really sure why it works, so you keep doing it, now it doesn't work anymore. Sometimes you in the mood, and so you just, it, it works, and sometimes you're not in the mood, and so you don't know what to do, right? It's a skill, okay? Um, give you an example, okay? Just like a very basic example. Okay, feelings of frustration with anybody you're in a relationship Siblings, parents, spouse, coworkers, boss. That's a part of a relationship, yeah? What about God? If you're in a relationship with God, are you going to feel frustrated with God? Okay, good. Now, how do some people maintain stable relationships? It, what? If they have frustration. Using specifically frustration. I'm not specifically referring to spouses. I want a general principle. Obviously, it's going to be different if you spouse is one thing, parents and children another, friends, it's different, coworkers is different. But frustration is part of relationships. How do you have a stable relationship if there's frustration? Now, here's the unfortunate truth is that many people's relationships are not stable because there's frustration. They get frustrated with the other person and that causes all sorts of rockiness, right? But yet there are people who somehow manage to have stable relationships and yet they have frustration. How does that work? What are they doing differently? What? Okay, so I have two boys. One is 10 and one is 9. They get frustrated with each other and they communicate. 
and it is not does not lead to a stable relationship. You have to take yourself out of the equation sometimes. Like take that step back and look at the situation as a whole as opposed to your emotions. Okay, so one thing is people who are have stable relationships, they are able to contextualize the frustration. Right? In other words, the frustration is a part of a larger whole. It is not the whole thing. But most of us, when we feel frustrated, how does it feel like? That's the entirety of everything. In fact, when you feel frustrated at a person, right, my 10-year-old who's more, more orderly, and then the nine-year-old leaves something around, and he's like, you never clean up, you never this, you never like, It's not true, like, he just spent the whole yesterday cleaning the room of his own volition. It's just not true. But when you're frustrated with somebody, all of a sudden, that's like all there is. So one skill is people who are able to maintain stable relationship when they're frustrated are able to put things in context. Okay? Now, are there other skills? Yeah. Okay. Can you learn these skills? Are some people better at it? Some people worse at it? Okay. So, if you don't have those skills, your relationship's going to be chaotic and up and down roller coaster? Yeah. Okay. Now, here's the thing. If you're going to have a relationship with God, let's just use this one thing. Does that mean you're never going to be frustrated with God? Okay. Do you know how to contextualize your frustration with God? So then what's going to happen with your relationship with God? Sometimes you'll be like, you're like, the, you're, this doing a mitzvah, it brings everything together and you feel it connected. And other times it like becomes this empty ritual and it's back and forth and up and down because you don't know how to. Just Now, there's so many different aspects to this, right? It's a, it's a skill you can work on, yeah. But if you really want to work on a relationship, working on a relationship means learning the skills to help manage all these different things that make them chaotic. Does that mean you want to create them into this this? I like the, the same thing all the time. That's not what it means. I like to use the following analogy of surfing, which I've never done. But one thing I've observed about surfing is that people who surf, generally their goal is not to be rocked about at random by large ocean waves. Right? That generally is considered to be a failure of surfing. Right? But if there's no large ocean waves, then you can't surf. So what's the idea? You learn to ride the waves and use them to take them where you want to go, right? So before I got married, one of my mentors told me that the important rule of marriage is fight often and fight well. Now what does fight often mean? It means if there is a conflict, do not let the conflicts build and build and build and then have one big conflict, but rather have a lot of Little conflicts. That's actually a skill. How do you make sure to have a little conflict? And the other thing is fight well. What does fight well mean? The goal of the fighting. So he said the goal of the fighting is that you are more on the same page after the fight than before. That has to be the objective of the fight before you start fighting. The objective of the fighting is the peace settlement, not the defeat of the other person. Now, is that now? Those, those are very generic things, but as a skill, those are those are. Yeah. Another thing, another mentor of mine told me, and, and, and these are, you know, marriage is one kind of relationship and you have to modify for different relationships and each person is individual as well, right? So the same generic techniques have to be adapted to each person. But if you have a conflict, this would be a spouse, whatever, generally the way people tend to visualize it is like if I'm having a conflict with you, so I'm over here, you're over there, and the thing that we have a conflict about is in between us separating us. And so the sense is we have to work through this in order to then not have this thing separating us. And so one of my mentors told me that the first step of a conflict is that you and the other person have to be standing next to each other and looking at the conflict, at the thing. That's a very different 
orientation to things. And these are skills and to work on them. And just because you figured out how to do with it in one relationship doesn't automatically mean you know how to do it in another relationship. You can be very good in, at, at using these skills in, say, your marriage and very bad with your boss. Very good with one child and very bad with another child because every relationship is different, right? But yeah, so there's this whole relationship with God that all is channeled through doing mitzvahs and not doing sins. A sense of, I don't want to do things that will separate me from God. I want to do things that will make me closer to God, which means I have to know more about God. I have to feel, and that whole thing, right? But if you don't have the skills to navigate it, then it's not just dynamic, it's completely chaotic. And that's extremely frustrating. And one of the ways we deal with frustration is that we often give up. So there's a whole world, literally a whole world of this level called nefesh. The lowest level is I don't, the sense I shouldn't do things, shouldn't engage in behaviors that are destructive to the relationship. Nothing more than that. And the highest, fullest level is that I can bring a deep awareness and passionate feeling of, to God that is then brought to, to, to culmination through doing a mitzvah or avoiding a particular sin. And then that feels like a very powerful moment of connection to God. And navigating and stabilizing, that's, that's the whole world of the nefesh. And that's a whole plane of existence. It's a whole level of being. If you've managed to create some kind of real stable sense of your nefesh, can you build on that to a totally different kind of relationship with God? And the answer is yes. But only if you do it that way. So in Kabbalah, it actually uses the following expression, that someone who has completed their nefesh merits the ruach. It's like if you completed the first story of the building, you can build the second story. But if you have, if the first story isn't really stable, you shouldn't be building a second story on top of it. Okay, so is nefesh synonymous with your behavior? No, because it's not just behavior. Nefesh is all about behavior. It's all focused, it orbits behavior. But it's the whole person. It's feeling, it's knowledge, it's sentiment, it's everything. Right. So when we see our primary connection to, to, to Hashem is through getting along through the mitzvahs and using the mitzvahs way to connect, because obviously if we're not doing that, then there's a huge, there's nothing to build on. But we need to bring our whole person to that, that's nefesh. The lowest level is just that sense of not, sinning or, not, or not, not doing a mitzvah that you know you're supposed to do. And the highest levels involve bringing everything to you. What did you say the second one was? Contextualize and? Contextualize. Like to contextualize, putting things in context, and the other, to deal with frustration. There were two you said. What was it? Just to stand looking at it. Oh. I, yeah, I just put the, the contextualize what you're frustrated about. Oh, then I said two things about fighting. Right. Yeah which was fight often and fight well. Mm -hmm. And then I said about not seeing the other person as the opposite, on the opposite side and the conflict in between you. Right. But there's a lot of things. And by the way, strategies and techniques that work for some people just don't work for other people, work in some relationships, don't work in other relationships. That's also true. But there are general patterns that people can learn. Okay. So that's the nefesh. Okay. Anyone have any questions? Tomorrow we'll learn about Ruach. No one's anything? Yeah. Like, if you look at, like, think if you like some small minor misbehavior, and like, it doesn't really affect. 
You can do minor misbehaviors and it doesn't affect what? Like, like it doesn't shake a whole situation. So, so, so this is it depends. The behavior per se, no. Where the behavior is coming from, yes. Right? So a small behavior which is taken at, out of contempt is the beginning of destroying the entire relationship. A much bigger behavioral thing which is done out of out of um, obliviousness is really not damaging if the whole relationship is intact. Right? And that's what I'm saying. It's not synonymous with behavior. It's all orbiting and centering on behavior. Right? I mean, you can, you, you, you know, the, the, the rolling your eyes in contempt while someone is talking to you is not a big behavior, but that behavior basically means the relationship is on its way out. I mean, you can then do stuff to bring it back, but it's, it's, you, like, from, like, that is like a serious crack. Um, but, you know, somebody who like really, you know, they forgot, they were busy, they were overworked and they forgot. And like that really messed up a serious issue that you were relying on them on. You know, if all other things are okay in that relationship, that relationship can bear that. Right. You see what I'm saying? Which is why like completing the nefesh does not mean that you don't sin per se. It means you don't have any t- internal tolerance of sin. So if you do sin, it's, it's, it's literally a, 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 a mistake. It was, in some sense, unintentional. But the sense of that my relationship isn't important enough to put the effort in, or I don't care, or, or doubts about believing, that those things are much more corrosive. See what I'm saying? Can I ask about like, the idea that like, a mistake is worse than intentional? It is, but that worse than intentional is not about building the relationship. That's just about saying that um, that's saying that there's between thoughtful and like completely thoughtless. Yeah. Wait, how can a mistake be worse than unintentional? There's a, there's an um, I'll give you an example. Yeah. If somebody if somebody um, if somebody is very angry and runs into the door and smashes down the door. Or somebody's running directly at the door and it's on a glass door. And they run right into the door because they didn't see it. Who has a bigger problem? Well, well, the person doesn't see the door. What does that mean? Like they actually didn't see the door. Like why? Like if there's a door right in front of you, why didn't you see it? There's some like deep, like problem going on. Whereas the person ran to the door because they were angry, smashed down. They're like, like, there was a level of awareness of reality there, right? So there is this, there is this discussion in, 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 in both in halacha and chassidus, what's worse, an unintentional sin or an intentional sin. In terms of building a relationship, an intentional sin is far worse. In terms of an assessment of like your of your deeper self, what you unintentionally do is a more honest evaluation of things. You see what I'm saying? And, and those are actually tied together because in relationship I'm connecting to someone outside myself. So if I like act with contempt towards someone because I'm spiteful, that like means that I'm not gonna connect to them at all. But that could be so at that so I'm I'm breaking the relationship, but it could be deep down inside I actually have tremendous desire for this relationship and for whatever reason I'm not exiting it. On the other hand, if a person is doing all the effort to build a relationship, but they keep making a lot of unintentional mistakes, then what does that indicate? 
that on some level they're, they're, they're trying to build this relationship, but on some deeper level they don't really value it. So when, when someone is like, check on the nefesh part, they shouldn't be having these unintentional sins because their relationship should be cemented. No, because there's higher levels. There's higher levels. So the nefesh part means you don't have these intentional sins, these sins of, of disregard, certainly no sins of spite, sins of... But you could have a sin because you're just... You're, first off, you're ignorant, and there's a lot of halachas. Maybe you just don't know the halachas. You're doing your best you can, but you just didn't know. And that's worse than intentionally sinning? Not necessarily. It depends where it's coming from. I don't get how in any case it could be worse. I'll give you an example. Do you ever... Um, if, can you imagine, like, on Shabbos, um, waking up in the middle of the night and going to the bathroom and turning on the light by mistake because you forgot it was Shabbos? Imagine someone, that happening to someone? Yeah. Okay. Can you imagine someone getting up in the middle of the night, thirsty, um, and going to the bathroom and drinking out of the toilet because they forgot it was a toilet? <laughs> Can you imagine that happening to a person? No. No. Okay. Now. Can you imagine somebody trying to make a point of how they don't want to conform to your social norms and drinking out of a toilet? Yeah. Okay. So, okay. so if somebody is intentionally going against something, that means they have a certain level of awareness of the reality of the thing. If someone's unintentionally doing something, it means they're not aware of reality. I mean, you're not aware, and, rea- and one of the things that, that, that's a topic for another time, but our awareness of reality is rooted to what we truly value deep down inside. If we really don't value something, we just are unaware, we don't process a part of our reality. The reason why you can turn a light on on Shabbos without realizing it is because on some level, Shabbos is something you deeply care about. Because if you did deeply care about the reality would be as vivid to you as the difference between a toilet and a sink. However, that's not something you should worry about when building a relationship. Because if you worry about those things, you just end up psychoanalyzing yourself. And that, that, when that is appropriate is when you're doing everything right to realize that just because you're doing everything right doesn't mean that at your core it's all coming from the right place. In other words, for us to be sitting here and worrying about like, our unintentional sins when we're like, struggling to like, build the relationship in a stable way is, is a little... Ridiculous. Right. But a person whose relationship is perfectly stable might want to say, wait a minute, okay, yeah, you're, you're doing everything right, you're building everything you should, but where are these unintentional sins coming from? On some level, you're, 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 it's an act. On some level, you're pretending to be someone you're not really. Because if you really cared about it this much, it wouldn't, you wouldn't have these kinds of forgetfulness things. That, so it's a, maybe a deeper problem and a more serious problem, but it is not a more urgent or immediate problem. Yeah, yeah, there's a difference. There is a difference. In halach, we differentiate between what's called we differentiate between what's called shaygig and misasik. Misasik means like 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 you 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 shaygig is you weren't aware that it's forbidden. Um, and on some the general understanding is on some level you could have checked. Whereas misasik is just like you know things happen like you bump into a light or something. 